This audio is from King's Cross Church in Independence, Missouri. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit kingscrosskc.com. This morning's scripture comes from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And it can be found on page 891 in the black hardback Bible in the pew in front of you. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Will Turner. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Cross. And uh, it's not lost on me um, as we talk about miracles and just the amazing works of God that, like, we have presently with us one of those miracles. And our brother Rafal, who has been so sick and in the hospital, we've been praying for him for weeks now. And this morning he is sitting right back there with us this morning. So yeah, that's amazing. It's so encouraging to see you. Sorry if you didn't know I was going to do that and if you're embarrassed, but I'm not sorry. (laughs) I, uh, I love this passage and I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but I, was, I kept referencing, whoever is preaching chapter six, am I going to step on your toes a little bit? Because this is really cool what I've got to make this connection. And then you look at the sermon schedule and it's like, oh shoot, it's me. I stepped on my own toes. Uh, but that's okay. Hopefully that makes it a little better. Um, 
But the, the reality of what we look at when we look at John, so far of what you've seen, is yes, we have a narrative in scripture of John talking about what Jesus did, but we know that there's more going on, that there's more that John is trying to get us as the readers to see, ultimately that Jesus is the light, the life, and that we would believe in him. And the way that he's doing that is showing us the way that he interacts with the people. The words John uses here are so careful and so purposeful. They're not just like, here's some details about what's going on, but he is trying to handle the expectations of the Jews. And that's really what this passage is about, is about expectations. Because then you even see hints of it, uh, that the Jews were trying to make Jesus king. They're trying to like, they have this idea of him in their head and Jesus is trying to show them I'm doing this my way, not the way that you think you, you, you think this should go. I'm doing it my way. And so I want to spend a moment just talking about these expectations that we can blame them for being, you know, oh, they were so silly. They didn't see things the way they should be. But like we do the exact same thing every day. We are a people built and wired with expectations. Every single one of you, um, this is a me fact, this isn't really anywhere. I just would say from talking with humans enough, I know that 97.85% of marital, relational, any fights have to do with missed expectations. All of them, every single one. It's like, you're like, eh, I don't think so. I think it's about this. And it's like, well, if it was about the laundry on the floor, that may not seem like expectations, but somebody expected those laundry pieces to be picked up. And so that's why they're mad. It all goes back to this idea of expectations. And then not just our expectations on something else, but as a person, uh, if you're a person who uh, is in a relationship with another human being on this earth, they have expectations of you and you have to manage those expectations. So it's a two-way street uh, in our relationships with these, these expectations with one another. And then on top of all that, we have uh, heroes or people that we look up to um, that we put all kinds of expectations on. And, and these people are wonderful and they inspire us. And, and, and because of that, like we load to, uh, so much worth and weight on them. And so all over the country right now, little boys and little girls probably, who know, they want to be the next super athlete like Patrick Mahomes, especially in Kansas City, right? They, little, I mean, my son thinks he will be the next Patrick Mahomes. And I'm just like... Hey man, like let's talk about some realistic, you know, expectations. And maybe he'll be good at that. But like we want to, well, we have to manage these expectations and, and we have these heroes, right? Something that humans do, and this would be a that would be a stuff humans do would be a great podcast, and maybe it is, but like is we take certain figures in which we've taken given them expectations towards and, and they are either met or unmet, whether we know it or not, and then we also take those expectations and we place them on God. For instance, if you were raised in a bad home, in a bad home, and maybe dad wasn't around or he was not a great guy, and you take all of those expectations, like this is how my dad is going to be when I get home, and then you start to believe like, well, God must be absent like that. God must be mean like that. God must uh, abandon me like that. And we start to like make those connections, even like we may not even know we're doing it. And adversely, we do the same thing with good families. Like a good family is like, oh man, if, if God, uh, God must be like my dad. He's a, he's a provider. God must, you know, work hard like mom. Like there's things that we do, but what we are doing is creating a worldview in our head of who God is, how he should be. That's an important phrase. How God should be according to what our experience is on this earth. And that is exactly what's happening right here. Right here, right now with these Jewish people. 
They have all of this prophecy that they've been reading and they've been working through and they've been studying and they've been taught on for years and they have what they think the Messiah is gonna look like in their head, locked down. It can't be any other way than this. And Jesus is constantly walking around dealing with those expectations on him. And so they are, he is running head on into that and, and he knew he was up against that. He knew that these Jews were fair weather fans like we discussed a few weeks ago, that they had a picture of him in their mind, that he, that he was going to disappoint them. He knew all of this. He knew that they wanted him to be some military leader to overthrow Rome and restore everything the way it was supposed to be and all of this stuff, right? He knew he was carrying that. He knew that he was supposed to be Moses reincarnated and free them from the oppression of another empire. And I don't think we can fully grasp the weight that they had on Moses and like the expectation that they would copy and paste onto Jesus unless you understand like One writer says this, if we combine the greatest leader in our world today with the greatest religious leader in our world has seen into one person, he wouldn't even be able to stay in the the same room as Moses in their eyes. Like Moses was greater than even what we can imagine to the Jews. He was their great hero. Not only was he responsible for bringing them out of Egypt, this writer says, and governing them as a nation for the first time, but he was also the greatest religious leader in their history. He's the one who went up the mountain, who, who is hidden by God and, uh, from God in the cleft and was given the law to come back down and deliver it to his people after God had delivered them from Egypt. He is the greatest hero these Jews could ever imagine. And now they're experiencing Jesus perform miracles. They're experiencing Jesus do certain things and they're making the connection that, oh, he's going to be copy and paste just like Moses. He's going to lead us out of Roman oppression. He's going to bring the waters of the flood down on Rome and end them forever. And he's going to take over and we're going to have this new uh, religious government. It's going to be awesome. And they were totally expecting that. But Jesus had much bigger plans in mind. And today's text just isn't about Jesus performing amazing miracles, but he, he did. He did do those things. This text is actually showing us a greater, showing us that Jesus is much greater than Moses, far greater than Moses. He's much greater than anything you or I could conjure up in our minds. Whatever the picture is of Jesus that you have all these expectations on, he's better than that. He's better than that. Jesus says in chapter five, even before chapter six, if you remember, the the Pharisees are even starting to compare him. And he's like, listen, Moses would be ashamed of you because you are missing it. You are missing this. Like Moses would be condemn you because you don't see me as the Messiah, the one who was prophesied, the one who is to come. Like you're missing it. Moses would condemn you guys. You guys think you're all buddy, buddy with him, but he's actually like on my team, not your team. Um, Jesus was not going to come to end earthly oppression, right? He didn't do that from physical kingdoms, but he was coming to end the rule of spiritual dominions that were far greater adversaries than Rome or any other government could ever be. And the question before we jump into the text is who are you worshiping here? right? Who are you following here? What are your expectations of Jesus? Is it Jesus by your terms, your picture of him? Jesus is only my king if he does these things, because this is how Jesus should be. If Jesus wasn't this, then he's probably not God. Like, are you worshiping him on your terms? Are you worshiping him by what this says he is, who he is, right? Do you have a checklist that Jesus is, is trying to meet? And if he doesn't do it, he's not worthy of your worship and praise. 
but I would, I would sit with you this morning and say that the Jesus of the Bible is trying to grab your cheeks, look you in the eye and say, this is who I am and I promise you it's better than you can imagine. It's better than you can imagine. He wants to show you who he is today. As we read John chapter six, the first 21 verses, he wants to show you who he is. And, and, and we have to wrestle with this reality is the question of, do you follow Jesus because he does stuff for you? Do you only follow Jesus because you think you can earn something or get something out of it or gain something for it? Is that why motivationally you are even in this room today? Is Jesus your puppet? Or do you actually see him as your king? And if he is your king, do you actually trust him as your king? A lot of us can say like, yeah, Jesus is our king, but do you trust that he is your king? Do you trust that with him everything, like every bit of it, not, not just like part of it, but like every bit of it, that he is sovereign and ruling and reigning and he's gonna do a really good job, better than we can imagine. Do you trust him with that? Is he just a catchphrase for you to get by? Like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I worship Jesus. Or is he, is he your authentic king? We have to wrestle with that when we look at this text because that's what Jesus would have the Jews wrestle with as they read this text. The reality that God's plan is better than your plan and it's probably gonna look way different than your plan. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe this morning that God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life? And the prayer this morning is as those, <clears throat> excuse me, as those things would actually sync up that God's plan and your plan would be one and that's what he does in the work and your life through the Holy Spirit. And so as we pray and jump into the Bible, wrestle with those questions because they're crucial to understand John 6. So Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given us these stories. Thank you that you've given us the specific small, what seemed to be mundane words in this text that actually connect to a far greater beautiful picture that show us who you are and what you're doing in this world. So God, we ask that we not just hear these words and think, oh yes, that was a good story. God, you did some really cool stuff back then, but God, you are a miracle worker. You can do the same things now, both physical and spiritual. And so we ask for that. We ask for our eyes to be open, our hearts to be open. We ask for our ears to hear this and for us to be changed. And it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, chapter six, verse one. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. So first off, we have four verses that seem like they're just giving us setting and context. <clears throat> And they are giving us setting and context. But John is very careful. If you know John, you know John loves the Old Testament. You read the book of Revelation the, 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 that, that John wrote, and it's, it, you really won't understand Revelation unless you read the Old Testament because John loved the Old Testament. He understood the prophets and he got it and he made those connections and he's doing the exact same thing right here in the first four verses in these seemingly very mundane details. So let's take a look at them. He is connecting Jesus right here to Moses saying like, you, you think Moses is unique in all of this? Jesus is doing the same thing. So look at the details. It's easy to read through these and just think like, oh, yeah, these are just 
details, but like he's so intentional. Look at the connections. There's four of them. And it's okay to get excited. Like you can get excited about these. Like if you're a Bible nerd in the room, which hopefully all of you are becoming Bible nerds, but like these four connections had me wigging out this week. Um, someone was visiting. I think Lizzie Mike was over and she was talking with Kayla downstairs and I came out and I was like, listen to these four. I mean, I'm just running around so excited about these like connections that John is making to Moses and you could miss them if you didn't understand the fullness. So I want us to get the context and, and jump in here. All right. First, he, he mentions that Jesus is just leading a crowd right? He's leading a crowd. You're like, duh. I've read the first several chapters of John. We've read the rest of John on my own. Like I know that Jesus is leading a crowd. Why would John mention that here? Because it's important. Moses also led a crowd of people, but not only did Moses lead a crowd of people. Why were the people following Moses? Well, reason two, it tells us they were following Jesus because the signs that he was doing of healing of the sick in the same way, Moses only had a following. Remember, he wasn't a good speaker. He was kind of awkward. Word and, and he mentioned all that uh, when God's talking to him in the burning bush. And, and he's like, just trust me. And so Moses goes back and he performs all of these signs. We have the plagues. We have all of this going on in Egypt. And so the people start to follow him out of Egypt because of the signs he was performing. Once again, the people are only following Jesus because of the signs that he is performing. Three, Jesus and his disciples go up a mountain. He wants us to make this connection. Like we've got a crowd of people. We've got a, a crowd of people following Jesus just because of the signs that he's performing. And then Jesus goes up a mountain. John's like, you want to make all your Moses connections? Here's a big one. Who goes up the mountain to receive word from the Lord? It's, it is Moses. Like he did that. And now Jesus is going up the mountain to deliver the word from the Lord, right? So he's going up this mountain. He's sitting around with his disciples. And then the fourth thing, the fourth detail that's mentioned, and don't miss this one. All these events took place during Passover, a yearly Jewish festival celebrating when God used Moses to rescue his people from Egypt. And the final plague, we talked about this at home with the boys this week. It was interesting because William was like, oh, that's me. When, uh, when the angel of death was sent and all of the firstborn in Egypt were slaughtered, except for uh, the, the children of, of the Hebrew people who would spread the blood of the lamb above their doorpost and the angel of death would pass over their house. And so they were celebrating that. They've been celebrating that since the time of Moses, since the first Passover. And now they're sitting on the mountain by the man who is performing signs and miracles and he's following them. And he's about to deliver another Passover. So cool, all these connections that they use. I want you to see it and I want you to be drawn into the tension that John is creating, that Jesus is walking in the footsteps of Moses and he's actually doing a much better job. And he, he specifically included these details to show us that, that uh, he is not just like a little bit better than Moses, he is far greater. So Moses, right, had to hear from God to perform miracles. He had to use a stick and he had to use all these things, right, the staff. He's like, Jesus is doing this on his own. He didn't need to do anything. He didn't need external. He did them as God himself in the flesh, walking around on the earth. He wants us to make this connection. And so he continues in verse five. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing the large crowd of people coming towards him up the hill, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to bribe bread so that these people may eat? I just feel like this is sarcasm and 
I don't know. This is like how my dad would handle this situation. It's like, oh, 5,000 plus people. Right? He says 5,000 men. We know it's way more than that because they don't even include the women and children. So we have thousands of people rolling up this hill as we're sitting there just hanging out. And we know it's Passover. We know that people are going to come up this hill. We're going to be hungry. And he's like, how are we going to feed these people? This is going to be wild, isn't it? And it even says he did this in order to test them. And you're like, come on, Jesus, like give them a break. These disciples, we already have established that they're not the smartest guys in the world. And like, you're trying to just mess with them here by saying like, hey, come on up this mountain and we'll see if we can feed you. And so already he's building anxiety in the disciples because, and you see that immediately. Philip answered him, um, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little bit of bread. So we have to rewind back for a moment because I want you to continue to build the historical tension of what Jesus is doing. If you go all the way back to Moses, Moses has led his people out of Egypt at this point. They're wandering in the wilderness. We're talking not just a few thousand, but one to two million people wandering in a desert where crops can't be grown and food is not easy to find. And there's, there's plenty of examples in the Exodus account that we see these people like handling it really maturely, right? They love not having food. No, they are constantly complaining. They're constantly like, we might as well go back to Egypt. It was better than when we were slaves in Egypt than be out of here and to be starving. Like they're constantly, constantly complaining. But we have to remember what God happened in his mercy. God told Moses he himself would provide bread on the ground called manna. And the people could fill up their baskets and they would feed their family for a day. But if they took more than what they needed, then it would spoil overnight. You'd have to take exactly what you need and and then the next morning, more manna would be on the ground. Every day he fed them with this manna. And funny enough, they do complain about the manna later. Of course they do. They're like, oh, we're just eating the same thing all the time. And so instead of, God, that's a whole nother thing. Kayla and I got sidetracked on that one day. Like he feeds them birds later. And it's just like, God, God loved them a lot. He did not have to put up with this complaining bunch of people. And then I realized like, oh, that's me and you. <laughs> like we do that too all the time. And God still takes care of us. But God provides manna over, uh, over and over again for these people every night. And here we have Jesus sitting on a hill with a similar dilemma. Lots of people coming up this hill to hear him teach and they're expecting to be fed because it is Passover and you have to eat on Passover. And he invites, he could have just done the miracle. He could have just done the miracle, not said anything. And everybody would have been like, oh, this is amazing. But I love what he does here. He sits with his best friends and he's like, he invites them into the miracle with him. It's like, I want you to see what's going on here. I don't want you just to experience the miracle. I want you to be a part of it with me. Like sit with me, experience like what I'm about to do is amazing. Like I'm about to show these people who I am, that I am God, that I'm better than any of expectation they could ever have on me. And I want you to be a part of it. And so he invites them in with these silly questions and, and he throws his like, it's gonna take a lot of money to do this, Philip says. And Jesus is like, yeah, it would, right? Like he's building the tension of the miracle and he invites them in. And they question the impossibility of it, uh, which is actually hilarious um, because in Numbers eleven thirteen the exact same thing happens. But it's the opposite. There's, not, there's uncertainty in Numbers. If you look back in Numbers, Moses is praying with desperation to feed his people. And, and he asks his people, or he asks God, he's like, how am I supposed to feed all these people, God? It's the exact same quote that Jesus is using now. How are we to feed all these people? But Moses was doing it out of desperation, desperation and uncertainty. Jesus is doing it out of, I actually know how this bread was made. I, I know the anatomical structure of how it's made. And I'm asking you to increase your faith. How do you think we're going to do this, guys? 
Here's an opportunity to take part in something incredible. Hungry and 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 you understand the anxiety too because like the crowds back then and even now, gosh, we we could blame them, right? But crowds that are hungry can get out of control. We, uh, Kayla and I, we were just talking about this the other night. We watched the Woodstock '99 documentary, and I don't recommend it. Um, it's rough, but the amount of people that just lost their minds and reverted to like acting like cave people uh, because they didn't have or water was too expensive and they didn't have enough food. And so they started going crazy and rioting and destroying everything and burning it down. Spoiler alert. Um, if you lived, you, you know, 99 Woodstock wasn't a good thing. So it all burned down, but they knew like crowds can get out of control. And Philip is feeling pretty anxious about what's going on. He's like, there's not enough food. It would take a lot of work. It would take eight months of wages. And that wouldn't even feed, that would give everybody maybe like one bite just with eight months of work. Like we cannot do this. And he's trying to solve this very real physical problem with like worldly control. He's trying to use like what we would do. I think I can figure this out. We can solve this. It would take this much wages to do it. And he's, the reality is like, dude, you can't do this. It's out of your control. It's out of your, out of your realm of uh, uh, control. And, and Matt Carter writes, this passage is a great reminder that we will always be confronted to, with uh, problems too big for us to solve. Death, disease, war, those are the big ones. And even when we shrink them down to a personal size, we realize how powerless we are. Who can stop himself from getting sick? We try, right? We take the uh, vitamin C stuff and we try to drink a lot of water and we go to bed early. Like we try, but if sickness is coming, we get sick. Who can stop himself from getting sick? Who can make sure that he's never misunderstood or mistreated? Who can make sure everyone likes him all the time? We are powerless, just like Philip. And like Philip, we are so quick to look for human solutions. A problem comes and our mind starts going and we're going to fix it. And like Philip, we forget who's standing right next to us. We forget who's right there with us. This problem is a big one for sure. We have to feed over 5,000 people. We have to do that. It's a big deal. But it's not too big for the king who was standing with the disciples on that hill. It was not too big. And Jesus wants you to see that right now, that whatever you're carrying into this room today, it's probably a big deal whatever's causing you fear, anxiety, worry, it may seem out of the realm of possibility for it to be solved on this side of heaven. But do not forget who is sitting next to you. Do not forget who is inside of you. Like, do not forget this. We joke all the time, Kayla and I were joking this week about the song, and it's a Christmas song, and I've been listening to Christmas music already for all of you haters. Um, but we were talking about the song, Mary, Did You Know? And we make fun of it all the time. We've made fun of it from this stage before. It's like, of course, Mary knew. She knew because she, was a, she read the Old Testament. She knew that the Messiah would come. And then she also knew because the angel told her like, that it was gonna happen. But what's so funny about that is like, we say that about Mary and yet we forget all the time that that same Jesus is reigning and ruling today. So it's like, Mary, did you know? It's like, no, church, did you know? Do you know who is standing next to you? Do you know who is with you? Jesus would ask you the same question. How are we gonna do this? It seems maybe impossible, right? How are we gonna, how are we gonna get you better? How are we gonna fix your financial issues? How are we gonna fix your marital issues? How are we gonna do that? He's inviting you into a miracle. 
because he can heal. He can bring about healing, and he does. That's why I love that we sang that same God song this morning. He's like, you were a healer then, you can heal now. You were a provider then, you can provide now. That's what he wants his disciples to see. Moses couldn't do that, but Jesus can. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, (laughs) this is so funny to me. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? It's like, why would you even say that, dude? Like, Like, there's so many people coming up this hill. Jesus is throwing out this faith question. He's like, hey, here's some some bread and fish. Like, five loaves of bread and two fish. My son could eat five loaves of bread and two fish by himself. Easily. Easily. The dude just puts it down. And like, this is nothing. And yet, we're supposed to feed thousands of people. And so Peter thinks it's a helpful thing to bring up. He's like, well, Jesus, we don't have the money to feed him, but here's some bread and fish by this, this kid, this poor kid, right? Just gets drug over. Hey, we're going to feed everybody with your food. And he's like, this isn't enough to feed them. But again, Jesus is just inviting everyone into this miracle to experience it, right? So funny to me that Andrew... His feeble attempt, right, with little faith, it's nothing. And it's easy to blame the disciples again for this, but how often do we forget and we even act sarcastic like this to God and say, like, God, there's no way you could do this. Oh, you know what you could do? Like, I guess you could do it this way, God. That would be awesome, right? And we play games with God, but God is absolutely in control and he knows exactly what's going on. And none of our problems or issues, they don't cause him anxiety. They don't cause him to worry. They don't cause him to stumble and freak out. He's got what's going on going on and he knows he's sovereign in control of it from the start and I love how Jesus answers because he doesn't answer back with sarcasm in fact <laughs> he considers Andrew's request and he's like oh perfect right perfect he takes the food and listen to what he does he doesn't do anything flashy with it it's not some like weird magic trick out of the back of a wagon like He just gives thanks, is what it says. He says, have the people sit down in verse 10. Now there was much grass in the place. The men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Don't miss that gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people, the, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. We've been praying with the boys this week and trying to get in them to memorize, you know, different verses. And most of them are passive aggressive verses based on their behavior. Um, <laughs> But, but we did honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land for a long time. It was like a year and a half on the, on the chalkboard. But, but now we've got Philippians 4, 6 up there. And I couldn't help but think of that passage when, when I read this. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus didn't perform a miracle in any special way. He literally held up the food gave thanks to God for it and distributed it to all. And everybody was full. Not just like, oh, this was great. We got a bite to eat. Like you were full. You were full. 
and there was leftovers, 12 baskets of leftovers. How do you get five loaves of fish and two, or five loaves of bread and two fish and have 12 baskets full of leftovers? Absolute miracle. Absolute miracle. It makes me also think of Ephesians 3 because Paul writes that Jesus loves to go above and beyond what we can ask for or even imagine. Can you imagine like when Paul wrote that and he had like maybe this moment in mind and he's like, yeah, he didn't just feed them and they were full. He wanted them to show that there were leftovers and there weren't just leftovers like on the ground. He's like, gather them up. We need to save these leftovers. We need to make sure that not a piece gets left out. Jesus is not just a good king, but he's a really good steward. He's a really good steward and he cares for you that much that the leftovers, maybe you feel like a leftover, would not be forgotten, would not be left out. He goes above and beyond what we can ask for or even imagine. One writer says, there's never a problem that Jesus has run into that he can't solve. Jesus runs into problems all the time and there's not one that he's faced that he cannot solve. He says, no wine at the wedding, no problem. No food in the wilderness, no problem. No life in the tomb, no problem. There's no problem that he can't solve. I want you to sit in that tension for a minute. And then he continues in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got in a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus had not come to them yet. And the sea became rough because strong winds were blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Duh. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There's a lot there that's really fun and amazing. And I want to unpack it. But before we do that, we have to rewind to Moses again. Because these two miracles, like, and you have to remember, John says this himself, there was tons of stuff that we didn't even record in the book because there was too much. So what John is recording is purposeful. We rewind back to Moses again, Old Testament Moses. He's faced with an impossible obstacle before him. After the first Passover, Egypt was sobbing. Go watch like Prince of Egypt, the cartoon. It's pretty amazing. Like, and it, it captured this. I know you're like, oh, that's an old movie. It's a great movie. Just go watch it. Great music. Um, but then when Pharaoh saw the Hebrew people leaving, he got angry and bitter again. God hardened his heart and he went after the people. He's like, nope, they're not getting out of this. And so he pursued them all the way to the Red Sea. He's chasing millions of people to the Red Sea with his chariots and his armies. But God told Moses to stretch his staff over the water. And the Bible says that God sent a powerful wind to split the waters so that they were able to flee Egypt and cross on dry land. It's one of my favorite miracles in the Bible. We know that they crossed. And after they crossed, he held up his staff over the waters again and they closed, eliminating the Egyptian armies behind them and rescuing the people of Israel. So now we fast forward back to John's narrative. And he gives, he gives us these, once again, seemingly mundane details that are actually reflecting back for a greater purpose. So we see Jesus telling his disciples like, hey, go on over the sea. Like he just did this incredible miracle feeding everybody on Passover. And he's like, all right, see you guys. You guys need to head over there. And then, okay, bye Jesus. And so they get in the boat and they start sailing. We don't know why Jesus stayed behind in this. And John, he doesn't give us those details. 
But he stays behind and he's like, go over there. And they don't just like go, they're rowing like miles out. We know the Sea of Galilee is about six miles across. So they're over at least halfway in the journey. And they're like, I guess Jesus is just gonna like jog around the edge or something or come later. And then notice the detail that John drops. If he's trying to show that Jesus is a new and better Moses, do not miss that the storm was causing the waters to be choppy. And why was it choppy? If you look at verse 18 in John 6, it says that a strong wind was blowing. The very same wind that on the Red Sea caused it to part into two pieces and that they could walk on dry ground. John includes a strong wind was blowing here to cause the waters to be choppy. The very same. Disciples sent by Jesus, sailing for four miles into rough waters, again, feeling anxious, right? Situation on the shore, situation on the hill, anxiety's building up. How are we going to feed these people? Jesus answers the problem. Sends them out on the boat. Of course, it's going to storm three or four miles into it. Rough seas. Now, some of these guys are fishermen. They know what's going on, but they're probably like, Ugh, this isn't good. We're on the sea. And then Jesus walks up to them as if the water is solid ground. If they were scared before, how terrified were they then? Because in that moment, Jesus became so much more. He's been performing miracles all up to this point, but now this isn't just a man, this is a deity. He is something other. What in the world are we dealing with here? That Jesus just rolls up to them, walking on sea as if it's solid ground. He split the seas with a powerful wind in the Old Testament, and now he walks on the stormy seas caused by the powerful wind as if they're nothing. One commentator says, here in the midst of the storm, they don't fear the storm now. They fear the maker of the storm. At this moment on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples were confronted with a power beyond their reckoning. They saw the power of God, and they were afraid. They were terrified. Everything around them being tossed around, the chaos of the sea, and they all forgot who was with him once again. And I love that because Jesus doesn't make fun of them for being fearful. He doesn't even like dog them. Like, what is your guys' problem? Didn't you just see what I did on the shore, you dummies? He doesn't do that. He lovingly calms their anxiety and says, Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is astounding. Jesus has been escalating his miracles in John. And John does this on purpose. You'll notice like we're at wine, water into wine at a wedding and they start getting bigger. They start getting bitter. All of a sudden he's feeding 5,000 people. Now he's breaking the laws of physics and walking across the water. And we know he continues to escalate the miracles all the way up to the resurrection. But he continues to do that. And he's continuing to show them, hey, I'm not just a guy with good preaching and you know I don't just do cool tricks like I am God incarnate God in the flesh and I'm gonna do something that blows your mind he's demonstrating his power over creation his creation which he as Colossians and Hebrews says spoke into being as he through Jesus laid the foundations of this very world and this is why I love the movie the matrix which is I can't believe you're making another matrix reference but that's what you're thinking but like 
The way Neo is so cool and the way he has power is because he's like in the matrix and he sees how it's made, how it functions. He sees the code. And when he sees the code, he can manipulate the code to do different things. So he can fly and stop bullets and all this cool stuff, right? Jesus actually spoke the world into being before the foundations of the world were laid. Like he knows the anatomical structure of water, of bread. He knows all of it and it doesn't intimidate him. And so walking on water is nothing to him because he was the one who created the water itself. He knows the inner workings of his creation and he can say things like change. I need more of this or be still and creation obeys his voice. That's unbelievable. I love C.S. Lewis because he talks about how Aslan the lion is a good lion, but he is not a safe lion. And Jesus is the same. He is a good king, but he is not safe. He demands creation to obey him and it does. And if you look back at verse 14, you see that some people saw all of this and they understood what was happening. They got Jesus's message right and they, they called him not just a prophet, but the word the is very important in verse 14. They see his miracles and they're like, this guy is the prophet. And this is actually a reference back. You love your Old Testament, or uh, John. Hey, this is a reference back to Deuteronomy because the book is wrapping up in stating essentially that no prophet again, rose like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all of his officials, and to the land. And the mighty acts of power and the terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. That's Deuteronomy 34. That's how it wraps up. In that time, it was true. No prophet had arisen to be like this guy. But now, at the, earlier in Deuteronomy, Moses himself reads this. He says, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own brothers and you must listen to him. And so the people who love Moses are finally starting, it's starting to click with them and they make the connection all the way back to Deuteronomy. Oh, this is the prophet. Not just a prophet, right? A lot of religions call Jesus a prophet, by the way. He's not just a prophet. He is capital T-H-E, the prophet. The prophet. Jesus is the prophet. He's the new, he's the improved Moses. He makes uh, provision when there is nothing. He can calm the worst storms. He can heal the sick. And the people believed he could set them free from Roman oppression. And what do they do? What does the text say? It says that they wanted to put a crown on his head and make him king. And that seems like a good thing, but it's not the reason they wanted to make him king, right? They wanted to make him king so he would do all the political things, that he would overthrow Rome, that he would fix it. And you know what? Jesus could have done it that way. He could have done it that way. He could have, yep, I accept this crown on my head. And he could have won. He could have called down angels. He could have called down fire and lightning from heaven. He could have opened up the ground and swallowed Rome whole, but he didn't do that because Jesus wasn't even worried about Rome. Rome was nothing to him. Jesus had a bigger fight ahead of him. One writer says this, that Jesus didn't fight Rome because he had a duel with death on the way. He had a duel with death on the way. They wanted to make Jesus king, but before he would wear the crown of gold, he chose to wear a crown of thorns. Before he would sit on the throne, he would hang on a cross. The crucifixion would come before the coronation. Moses won a greater victory, but it pales in, in comparison to the victory Jesus won when he rose from the grave triumphant over death and hell. All of that. Do not think for a second, church, 
that we're talking about a different Jesus here than the Jesus that rules and reigns today. This Jesus that John is hanging around with is the exact same Jesus who rules and reigns this very moment in creation. It's the same. He's the same one who performed the miracles then. He's the same one who looked into this room, to this room, and he said, Michael. He said, he said Christina. He said, Colby, come from death into life. It's the same Jesus who looked at you who were dead in your sin, who saw you were just laying in a ditch, helpless, without any hope. And he said, hey, you don't have to be dead anymore. Because of what I've done for you, you can be alive now. You can be alive now. You can stand up. You can clean off your clothes. I can give you a new robe that that makes you get into the heavenly kingdom. Like you look, God doesn't look at you and see your brokenness and sin anymore. But he said, come to life, put on this robe, put on my jersey, you're on my team. And God looks at you and sees his son. It's a miracle. It's the same Jesus. You were once dead and now you're not. He's the same Jesus who provides, who delivers, who saves. He performed all of these miracles here so that you would see him and know that he is God and he died on the cross for your sins and he was resurrected so that you could be with him as your God. This is the same Jesus and this same Jesus won't be manipulated by your plans or your schemes, but he asks that you trust in his plan. And here's what that means. Here's what that means. Like, okay, we trust in Jesus' plan, but here's what that means. When it looks like there's not enough bread or the storm is too much, you don't go to anything else but to him. When it looks like things are getting pretty bad, go to him. Go to him. He's the ultimate provider. He's the ultimate deliverer. And he may not do it your way, right? He may not be, oh yeah, you got a problem. Boom, let's fix it. He may not do that. <laughs> I got a ice, ice baby in there. You got a problem, I'll solve it. Like, that's not what he does. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't help it. He's the ultimate provider and he promises that he will do it, but he may not do it your way, but I promise you that he will do it a good way. He will do it a good way. No leader, no politician, no flag, no army, no bank account can save you ultimately, provide for you ultimately or deliver you ultimately, but he can (laughs) and he wants to and he wants to, not because you're special, not because you're great, but because he loves you, because he loves you. And the question remains, where do you and where will you go when bad stuff happens to you? Where will you go? When the news gets worse, inevitably, when the bank account gets lower and lower, he's right there. He's extending his arms to you to trust him. Life's gonna get hard. Doesn't promise an easy life for believers at all. In fact, he, he provides you with something better. He provides you that in the he provides for you that in the middle of all of your suffering, all of the pain, all of the the excruciating pain that life can throw at you. He tells you that you can be with him and that that he will give you peace and ultimately your pain isn't pointless. It isn't pointless. And we can all hold fast to the promises of Romans that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. It's a promise. The invitation is open for you. 
Maybe today you're realizing for the first time that your whole life, that you've been believing in Jesus, believing that you can manipulate him, that you can use him to gain something, whether it be in this world or if I do the right things, then maybe Jesus will love me and I get to go to heaven one day. And that's what it's all about. It's just like manipulating the equation so that you get to not go to hell, right? I'm just trying to get out of hell. But that's not Christianity. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is way better than that. It's way better than that. And the invitation for you today, for the wanderers, the skeptics, the hopeless, you actually can have security. You can have security that Jesus will hold you in his hand and nothing can, in this world can separate you from the love of God. And this comes through the saving work of the gospel in your life. So believe in Jesus, go to Jesus, love Jesus. I want to end with this um, quote from Matt Carter in his commentary. He says, if we, want to fi- if we want Jesus to fix all of our problems, but we don't want to have to follow Jesus, all we want is a puppet king. We want another Moses, someone to get us out of trouble and to make our lives a little bit more comfortable. And Jesus is so much more, so much greater. The only way to come to Jesus is to lay down your expectations to put aside all of your requirements, let go of the strings and follow him. And when you do, you will find that not only is Jesus greater than Moses, but Jesus is far greater than anything you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for for your provision. You are the ultimate provider. You are the ultimate deliverer, God. And God, I say that knowing that you don't always do that the way I think you should. You don't. I asked for provision and you provide it years later in a way that I didn't expect. But God, I'm thankful that you do provide, that you do bless, that you do cover, that you do protect in all the ways that you do it best. You know the way. And so God, I ask for the strength to trust you in your plan. I ask for you the strength that in the unknown of this world where we are struggling and hurting and all of that, God, that you would actually show up, that you would help us not forget that you're sitting right next to us, that you're with us, that you haven't left us, that you won't abandon us. Do not let us weak, feeble-minded humans forget that. And also, God, let us be so encouraged to hold fast to the hope that is you, that is our salvation. Let it be anchored in you, as Hebrews teaches. Lord, we love you. God, we ask for more miracles, more moments that we can see that you are God, the one and only, the prophet, the king. Lord, I pray if there's people in this room today that have never recognized you as that or even have lived their entire life trying to manipulate you for some worldly gain, God, that their hearts would be broken right now and that for the first time they can meet you face to face and you could just do what you always do. Say, do not be afraid. I love you. God, I ask for that in this room. Lord, we ask that you do these miracles because you've did them before and you can do them again. That's in your name we pray. Amen.